0: If you want to change up your laundry game this year, right now my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled, that's earthbreez dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Previously on Drilled...
1: I was on a radio show, two hours, they called and said, can you come in and talk about climate change? Sure. And it was K-Talk Radio, 6.30 a.m. And I still remember this so well. And it was two hours of live TV and they broke the call record and everybody that called in was antagonistic toward me. Nasty. It was all, let me talk to that tree-hugging do-gooder kind of guy. And that's how the whole interview went. And I got done, I was like, "Why are, why are they so angry?
0: We learned in the last two episodes about the ways in which oil companies influenced the media. But they were spending tens of millions of dollars a year with PR companies, and that money wasn't just being used on op-ads and influencing editors. It was also fueling a broader social influence campaign. For the media strategy to work, fossil fuel companies also had to shift how people think. They did that by seeding an anti-science attitude amongst conservatives, continually pushing the idea that you can't have innovation or progress without oil, and also shifting how people thought about the connection between religion and the environment.
2: That's not a scientific argument. That's almost, a, that's a theological argument or, you know, religious, I don't know what you do with that.
0: Those who had the most to lose
3: from climate legislation sat up and said, it's war. We have to do everything we can to stop this thing.
1: The idea is that fossil fuels become part and partial of progress, a good life, economic gain, and jobs.
0: New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less, and we all know it's not going to happen. <laughs> but one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing Earth Breeze. I know what you're thinking. Laundry is not so fun. Those huge heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring. There's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean. It smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes. So it's perfect for every load. You'll never run out of detergent again, thanks to EarthBreeze's easy, flexible subscription. You can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties, and you save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Plus, shipping is always free, and eco sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. It also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life, and the company has donated over 100 million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 4, 0. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Remember the ICE campaigns we covered previously? That social influence campaign began in the early 1990s and it aimed to, as Kurt Davies put it, move people away from a sense of urgency around climate. One way to do that was to discredit climate science. The most extreme promoters of climate denial claim that climate science shouldn't even be called a science. Here's Steve Malloy, a drafter of the victory memo and founder of the website Junk Science, saying exactly that to me.
1: Climate science pretty quickly, climate science quotes around science mm-hmm. uh, pretty quickly revealed itself to uh, be also
3: not science. And, um, you know, the, the, the agendas were
2: clear from the beginning.
0: A great ally to oil companies in pushing this message were the dozens of conservative talk shows that sprang up in the 1990s. And that happened because conservatives and industry trade groups pushed the FCC to get rid of the Fairness Doctrine. It was sort of the net neutrality debate of the 80s. In 1985, pushed by industry lobbyists and various conservative groups, the Federal Communications Commission revoked the Fairness Doctrine It was a policy that had been in place since the late 1940s. The Fairness Doctrine required broadcast license holders to both present controversial issues of public importance, and to do so in a manner that was honest, equitable, and balanced. At least in the FCC's view. It was the original, fair and balanced news. It wasn't a perfect policy, of course, it was fairly arbitrary and almost impossible to enforce. Still, as soon as it was revoked, we saw the rise of AM talk radio, dominated by far-right conservatives like Rush Limbaugh. Rush's show was a favorite outlet for social influence campaigns. In fact, it's in the ICE campaign plan to advertise regularly in his show. Rush would rile people up about liberal hoaxers trying to use this made-up global warming stuff to stop American business. And then he'd get them to sign up for an information packet to learn more. At which point the various oil companies and coal companies funding the ICE or other types of campaigns would send out essentially propaganda to these listeners.
2: Now this message from the EIB Department of Protection from Environmentalists.
1: Enough of this bad Um, bad press EIB is getting for what misguided commie libs are calling our anti-species position. Even now, ladies and gentlemen, our scientists are in the field studying the mating habits of a rare species because we care about preservation. This rare species is the Arkansas broadbeam. Get ready. Shh, shh, shh. Listen. Listen to their mating calls. You can hear them now. As you have plainly heard, ladies and gentlemen, environmentalists of the Limbaugh Institute for Advanced Conservative Studies have unearthed this amazing discovery, the mating habit of the Arkansas Broadbeam. It happens every four years. It roughly corresponds to that period from the day after the Democratic Convention to the evening before Election
2: Day. <laughs> as a public service from the EIB Department of Protection from Environmentalists. By
1: the way, the uh, sound that we've used to identify the Arkansas broadbeam, ladies and gentlemen,
2: is the laughter of Hillary Clinton.
0: Hear that misguided commie libs bit at the beginning there? If that sounds a lot like the part in the victory memo where fossil fuel industry groups and oil companies wrote that their goal was to make people who believe we need to act on climate change seem, quote, out of touch with reality? That's no coincidence. It was a key talking point for oil company-funded campaigns. A key target of the ICE campaigns played into this too. Their strategy documents cite older, less educated men as a choice demographic for anti-climate science campaigns. That target turned out to be right on. This group ate up the messaging around climate denial and were easily mobilized by conspiracy theories. To this day, the vast majority of climate deniers fit this demographic.
3: There's a lot of research that has absolutely shown there is a strong gender component to rejecting climate science, for the vast majority are men.
0: That's climate scientist Katherine Hayhoe again, noting that the vast majority of climate deniers are men. That's not just from the anecdotal evidence of who tends to harass her. It's also backed by multiple studies. One from Michigan State University sociologist Aaron McWright and Oklahoma State University sociologist Riley Dunlap looked at public opinion polls from 2001 to 2011 and found that white, conservative men in particular are far more likely to be climate denialists than any other type of American. And those who identify as having a great understanding of climate science are even more likely There's that perfect mix of denialism with just enough actual science that the oil companies perfected in the 1990s. These campaigns got people fired up and fed into a desire to avoid the complexities of dealing with climate change. The cycle of outrage and the linking of conservative identity to it carried into the creation of Fox News in the mid-1990s, which brought more of the same. It seems normal to us now, but just listen to the difference between this, Walter Cronkite in the 80s,
3: There's another warning today about the greenhouse effect. That buildup of carbon dioxide scientists fear could create a global warm-up. Energy department consultants say future coal use by the United States, China, and the Soviet Union could create an impact beyond human experience, creating average surface temperatures likely to be warmer than at any time during the last 100,000 years. Because some regions would benefit from the greenhouse effect, the report warns, climate changes could pit nation against nation and group against group. The report calls for continuing study of the greenhouse effect.
0: And this, Rush Limbaugh just a few years later.
2: This is not the first kind of this story we've had. We've had numerous stories in recent years about expeditions to Antarctica to study climate change and global warming getting stuck in ice so thick that icebreakers couldn't even reach them. And they were shocked and they were stunned. They believe their own nonsense that the ice at the North and South Poles is melting. When it's not, it's getting bigger.
0: By the early 2000s, not believing in climate change was a key part of the conservative identity. After more than a decade of social influence campaigns, a large number of people had been convinced that climate science was really just an ideology that you either believe in or not. Never mind that the same people funding those campaigns had acknowledged the scientific consensus on global warming several years earlier. But keeping people outraged about science is no easy feat. And so, climate scientists and environmental groups became targets. Here's environmental sociologist Bob Bruhl It's
1: a matter of trying to, what they call, have interactions, fruitful interactions and partnerships with environmental organizations bringing the environmental groups inside of the tent, making them feel as if they have power, and in the process they become compromised, lower their expectations of demands, and become tamed. On the other hand, those organizations that can't be brought into the tent and co-opted are subjected to harassment campaigns, and that there are public relations companies that specialize in going through the trash cans of environmental groups, and and engaging in harassing activities of environmental groups.
0: The smear campaigns reached their peak around the Global Climate Summit in Copenhagen in 2009. Climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe says efforts ramped up around Copenhagen. In fact, she cites it as an inflection point similar to James Hansen's testimony in 1988 and the pushback around Kyoto in the late 1990s.
3: So starting in 1988, they had already mobilized the fossil
0: fuel industry, the Koch brothers, um, you know, all of those
3: think tanks and for dark money funded organizations. They had already mobilized to the extent that when Kyoto came along, they knew what to do. Mm-hmm. And it was dead in the water before it came home. But then with Copenhagen, they had Obama. And so they're like, oh, you know, this guy can actually make something happen. We don't have a Republican president. So they had to really pull out the stops. And when I say they, it was not just the U.S. I mean, the the emails that were hacked from the scientists,
2: you know, Mm -hmm. that whole kind of climate Mm -hmm.
3: gate thing, that was directly in preparation for Copenhagen, and it likely came from the Russians. I mean, there's no definitive answer yet, but it's more than likely if you had to pick a country, it would be the Russians.
0: The climate gate scandal involved the hacking of several scientists' emails, pieces of which were then released and linked together to make normal back and forth between scientists sound like some sort of nefarious plot to mislead the public. It kicked off a wave of harassment and scientists with no experience with the limelight had their personal lives mined, exploited and upended, all in an effort to discredit their field. Like the industry-backed media strategies, these cultural campaigns focused on influencing the influencers. In addition to pushing anti-regulation or climate-denialist rhetoric, these campaigns also relied heavily on pro-oil propaganda. Here's Bob Bruhl on that.
1: Literally since after World War II, the fossil fuel companies have actively engaged in public relations campaigns to sell the automobile and fossil fuels as the American way of life and as the good life. And the idea is that fossil fuels become part and partial of progress, the good life, economic gain, and jobs. And I have a a published report for mobile that talks about how they seeded the collective unconsciousness
0: with these ideas while the pro-oil propaganda had been going on since standard oil first worked on cleaning up its reputation in the early 1900s the 80s and 90s brought with them a new context reagan was the conservative answer to the 1960s social justice movements and the backlash he brought with him was no accident Conservatives had begun mobilizing on the War of Ideas amid the 1960s protests, so by the time Reagan was elected in 1980, they were in prime position to capitalize on a Republican government. New conservative think tanks, many of them funded by fossil fuel interests, including Exxon, Koch Industries, and Peabody Coal, emerged in the early 1980s. And they behaved very differently than the mainstream think tanks, most of which were started by progressives in the early 20th century. In the same way that the new conservative media was bloated and angry, where its predecessors had been straightforward and calm, this new breed of think tank was aggressive and opinionated, where the established think tanks had tended to be more scholarly and measured. I recently interviewed Ken Caldera, a long-time software programmer turned atmospheric scientist, and one of the first guys to get into geoengineering a while back. When it comes to science, he says he likes to be the first at the party and the first to leave but he's been thinking a lot about whether and how science contributes to social change. You know, I don't understand
1: how social change happens when it challenges the interests of a well-entrenched and powerful minority. And, I mean, it seems to me that that's the central question of how that happens. And it's not climate science, it's, it's political strategy.
0: If you want to understand how to drive rapid social change, looking at the conservative movement from the 1960s to today is a great place to start. And a big part of that movement has been to quash environmental initiatives. One of its biggest successes has been to stop any real action on climate change. In addition to the think tanks and various messaging efforts, an increased push was made to tie conservative policies to religion during this time frame, too, and climate change was a perfect issue for this strategy. While early conservative environmentalists had used religion and a biblical calling to be stewards of the planet as a reason to protect the environment, in the 80s and 90s the religious argument changed. In keeping with the whole manifest destiny idea, the prevailing argument in conservative circles became that God had given us oil and coal and that we're meant to use it. Here's our document guy, Kurt Davies, on that.
2: The most outlandish quote on this is Fred Palmer, who was at Peabody Coal eventually, but was part of the ICE campaign. He was one of the one of the chair of the ICE campaign. He's recorded in the late 90s by a television crew from Europe, and he says, uh, when you step on the accelerator, you're doing the work of the Lord. This is God's plan to put the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And basically that, he says that today, he's at Heartland Institute now. And there are a number of them that believe, full-hearted, not, this is not deception, this is not like the paid tobacco scientists, they believe that oil and coal were put here in the United States by God for us to use. And I don't know how you that's not a that's not a scientific argument. That's almost a, that's a theological argument or, you know, religious. I don't know what you do with that.
0: And here's that documentary he mentioned.
2: You're doing God's work. Every time you turn your car on
1: and you burn fossil fuels and you put CO2 in the air, you're doing the work of the Lord. Absolutely. That's the system. That's the ecological system we live in.
0: Really solidifying this ideology in people's minds would require not just media and cultural influence, though. Exxon, the American Petroleum Institute, the Koch brothers, and their ilk would also need to get at the research and regulatory institutions with power. The lengths they've gone to are pretty shocking, and we've got some never-before-published information on how entrenched these companies are, from even county-level politics on up to the nation's most prestigious universities. More on that in the next episode. Next time on Drilled.
1: They find just the right person who goes to the judge's country club. Someone who knows his brother. And they wait until the right period of time, and then they make the approach.
0: Drilled is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. Reporting for this series was done by me, Amy Westervelt. Our producer and composer is David Whited. Our executive producer is Richard Wiles. Our story and concept consultant was Reka Murthy. Our cover art was designed by Lucas Lisakowski. You can find Drilled wherever you listen to podcasts. Please remember to rate and review the podcast. It helps us find new listeners. Thanks for listening. See you next time.